calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Have you ever wanted to hear more about deities worshipped in Nigerian religions? Or black vampires dwelling amongst Americans? Or how about those mermaids in Trinidad and Tobago? If so, check out By the Fire podcast where I, Ken, your host, explore tales of mythical creatures and folklore from across the black diaspora. Join me every two weeks where I review black horror media, hear insights from a variety of guest speakers, and be amazed at the vast archive of tales passed down from generation to generation. Check out bythefirepodcast.com for more information and subscribe to the newsletter so you never miss an episode. I look forward to you joining me by the fire. to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and this is Vulgar History International. This is our season where we're looking at, well, basically as many countries as I can get to before uh, the season is over. I'm trying to eventually get an episode per country where each and every member of the Tits Out Brigade is living, and that is going to be probably a multi-year plan, but, you know, I'm down for it. Today, we're going to have some overlap with okay so the international thing was partially because i have done so many episodes about england basically slash the united kingdom slash that land mass uh in past seasons and i know that there's there's tits out brigade colon uk um and love you guys love that you're listening and slash also tits out brigade ireland shout out to you as well and anyway, this story, basically what I'm trying to do is to like quasi apologize for the fact that we're going to land wind up in Scotland and England, but on the way, we're going to also go to Denmark 
and we're going to Norway. So we're getting into some of these Scandinavian regions. And that, with that in mind, I wanted to thank two members of the Titsuit Brigade who helped me with some pronunciation, because the woman we're talking about is Anna of Denmark. Her name looks like my name, but with an E at the end. But because it's Danish, it's pronounced differently. So thank you to Ida, and also thank you to, well, Titsuit Brigade member Delaney's fiancé, who is Danish, who both sent me audio recordings of how to pronounce this name, as well as the name of her brother, Christian. So I'm going to do my best Danish pronunciation for that. So it's Anna. So like my name, but with N at the end of Denmark is who we're looking at today. And this is another story like we've had some before, and it's always really baffling to me to find somebody where... Okay, so my references, like, first of all, wikipedia.com. Thank you, Wikipedia, for having a fairly comprehensive article on her. Super helpful. But even on Wikipedia, they're saying, like, you know, she has this bad reputation. People thought that she was unintelligent, that she was vapid and shallow. Uh, But, you know, she wasn't really. And I'm like, okay, well, no one told me she was to be in with, so I'm jumping in, assuming she is not like that. So there's a lot of defensiveness in the readings that you do about it. I also looked at, there's an article on historyextra.com by Tracy Borman, who also explains, you know, Anna of Denmark gets this bad reputation, but is it deserved? You know, actually, she was pretty smart. And I'm like, why does everyone keep saying that she has this bad reputation that people think that she was so unintelligent? Uh, There's a book called Scottish Queens, 1034 to 1714 by Rosalind K. Marshall, which gets into some more details about her as well. And ultimately, what I am going to assume, um, given that there's not that much written about Anna of Denmark, is partially because, so her era, it's like just after the Tudor era. And I talked about this in the episode where I interviewed Lucy Jago about her excellent book, A Net for Small Fishes, where Tudor England is so popular and it's so talked about and it's so sort of familiar to fans of history in the same way that like, um, I don't know, I'm trying to think, like like Germany in World War II or like, um, I don't know, Victorian London. Like these are just settings where so much stuff has been set there. There's been so much work done on the history of these eras that you can really assume a shorthand that whoever's reading or listening kind of knows the deal already. So you can really just jump right to the story, which is what I'm able to do in this week's episode a little bit versus when you're looking at like we did the so far this season you know like ninth century Kashmir. it's like okay i'm gonna need to like explain some stuff before we can get to the story so the tudor era is so talked about the henry the eighth thing i talked about in the q a episode it was a main a big um entry point for me just in getting interested in history and women's history i asked a question in my instagram stories just after that podcast episode came out the q a and just asking what people's, what was their entree? What got them interested in history? I, it was a poll. So of the options, there was four options. And the wives of Henry VIII got something like, something like 50%. Like it's a common entry point for people. The Tudor era, so well known. And all, and I'm leading to the point that like Anna, sorry, Anna of Denmark came right after. Like she was married to James who is the man who became king after Elizabeth I. So like literally the beginning of the Stuart period. So that period is not as discussed 
as the Tudor era. And then James himself really um, sort of overwhelms the period just because he was such an overwhelming presence. So this is, we're talking about Anna. We're not talking about James. If you want to know about James, I did a whole So This Asshole episode about him on the Patreon. You can join that at patreon.com and Foster Writer. He was a nightmare person. So just to, so we're all on the same page. I was thinking I might tell the story and then be like, surprise, this is who she married. But it's like, no, like, let's just all start here from a common understanding of James the first being a nightmare, chaotic person. So who is this guy? He's the son of Mary, Queen of Scots. His father was Lord Darnley, who is the worst person I've ever read about in um, British history. So, and he took entirely after his father, clearly, because James is like the second worst person. So some of his greatest hits you may be familiar with. Uh, So he was very paranoid. He is very misogynistic. And he was really into witch hunting. And then once he hunted the witches, burning those women. So he, let me just see, I wrote a whole article about this. I'll put a link to it. Um, it was in the Late Lamented Bitch magazine. I wrote some historical articles for them. I wrote an article about uh, the comparing James the First's witch burning with uh, the actions of evangelical Christians in contemporary United States. So no country accused or executed as many people for witchcraft as Scotland did during the reign of James, where as many as 4,000 people were killed, more than twice as many as in the larger and more populous England. So what was his deal? Highly superstitious, paranoid, and misogynistic. James saw witches as threats to his personal safety. He wrote books like one called Demonology. Uh, So it was the sort of thing where it's like how today people, I don't know, like Fox News hosts or whatever, publish a book. And because they do, then those ideas become more widespread because of who wrote it. So... Accusations and executions increased exponentially following the publication of this book because it's like, oh my god, the king wrote a book. It's like, well, we should pay attention to this. It also incited mob violence against suspected witches. Um, His personal misogyny really colored who was accused of being a witch. Uh, Women comprised 80 to 90% of accused witches in Scotland of the women accused during his reign. Disproportionate amount were poor, widowed, elderly... Or all three. Um, he also is known for, if you might have heard of the King James Bible. It's a Bible popularly used by lots of Christian denominations in the today. And he, he is the King James of the King James Bible. So he was really into um, taking this text that was written not in English and really applying it specifically to his current context. So he ensured all references to witchcraft in the Bible, which were not gendered in, I guess, the original Hebrew. I'm not sure what language the Bible was first written in, Aramaic. Anyway, he made sure all references to witchcraft got female-coded, so creating this connection between female gender and witchcraft specifically. Um, He explained in his book, not the Bible, demonology. Uh, Witches were not born evil, but became evil through satanic temptation. And men, sometimes this happened to them, but women were so much weaker. Of course, this is going to happen to them more often. There's the famous phrase from this Bible, the King James Bible, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. 
which actually he invented. That was not in the Bible until he wrote the King James Bible. The word witch in that phrase, like what he translated it from, the original word was the Hebrew word kashaf, which in context means someone who uses herbs in a negative manner, such as a poisoner. Anyways, uh, the original Hebrew phrase also can be translated to indicate penance is all that is required to atone for being a kashaf. But James was like, mm, I'm going to call this witchcraft. I'm going to say that you have to be killed if you do it. So other stuff he did, James, um, who is called James the sixth and first because he was James the sixth of Scotland. And then later he became James the first of England. So he's kind of both. So he also, it was under his reign that England began colonizing North America. Maybe you've heard of Jamestown. He's the James from that. He also, you might remember from the Tits of Francis Howard episode, he was the king who was having the affair with Francis Howard's lover, Robert Carr. Um, and then eventually he kind of like covered he so that he wouldn't be implicated in this like love quadrangle that was all men and also Tits of Francis Howard. Then he had them sent to jail, etc. So he had terrible taste in boyfriends. Probably a gay man. He clearly preferred hanging out with men much more than women but that and or he's just like wildly misogynistic um he was horrible with money qualitatively i think objectively we can all agree he was a nightmare disaster as a person and that is the husband of anna of denmark so the reason as far as i can ascertain why Anna has this reputation of being sort of like vapid and like uninteresting and unintelligent is because James said that. So it's like, I'm sorry, are we taking his judgment of literally anyone, let alone a woman? So right away, I'm just like, okay, let's just kind of begin from the beginning. What's her deal? And who is she outside of her relationship with this nightmare historical disastrous person well i'll tell you anna was born on december 12 1574 in denmark she was the second daughter of king frederick ii and his wife sophie of mecklenburg gustro so she was the second daughter so i'm sure there was this thing where they're like oh no it's not a son but like don't worry about it they have a son later everything's okay so her older sister was called elizabeth and so for the first few years of their lives, they were sent away to be raised by their maternal grandparents in Gustro, which is in kind of modern day Germany, which was, I wrote here, maybe for the best. So their parents, Frederick and Sophie, oversaw a royal court known for overall debauchery with just like food and sex and wine everywhere all the time. Whereas the grandparents were, well, everybody was Lutheran. That's like the flavor of Protestant that was happening in Denmark in the and surrounding regions at this time. The grandparents were more stable and frugal, perhaps better role models for the girls. That being said, like nothing wrong with being a decadent, debaucherous royal court. I'm all in favor of it. And their mother visited often. Her name was Sophie, and she was much closer to her parents than was usually the case back then. And she was determined to nurture a similar bond between herself and her own children, which she did. So this included breastfeeding her own children rather than using a wet nurse, which was 
really confusing to everybody at the time because that was just not what was done. But Sophie's like literal tits out, breastfeeding style. So good for her. So yeah, so then the son was born a name that is pronounced as my Danish consultants have both said with a very guttural, almost like Klingon type thing. So I'm going to pronounce it as best I can. I'm going to step back from the microphone slightly and say Christian is the brother who's born Christian. So he's born two years later and everyone's like, yay, Prince, you know, there'll be an heir, nothing confusing. So he was sent to join his sisters in Gustro. And then when they were, when Anne was five years old, all three children were returned to their parents' court in Denmark. I think because Sophie just like wanted her kids around her and like, cause this is, you know, scandalicious in that way. Everyone's just like, what a mother who wants to be with her children? Like what is happening? She had two more sons and two more daughters. Sophie was an affectionate mother and cared for them all very lovingly. It was a very, I have to say, we don't often see a family unit like this on this podcast and good for you, Sophie. So in general, so Friedrich is the king of Denmark and it was sort of, it was like a happening place, Denmark doing well in the like international trading ways or whatever so they have these daughters and so princes and kings from all over wanted to get to marry Anna and or Elizabeth or the younger ones so the national religion was Lutheran as I said and so they would only consider potential husbands from countries who also were like under the umbrella of like Protestantism e.g. not Catholic people so that you know helpfully limited how many options there were by far the best option they were facing was james who at this point this is pre a lot of his nightmare behavior but frankly mid some of his other nightmare behavior so he was unmarried he was a king of scotland and he was a good option for political reasons but also i mean notably he was only eight years older than anna which was a much smaller age gap than the 24-year age difference between Sophie and Frederick, her parents. So at this time, oh, I didn't talk about who was around when. Just a sec. I want to tell you to place this amidst the other vulgar history. People, I have this increasingly long like spreadsheet document of like who lived when and who died when. So she's got very similar time period to a couple other people. Let me just see. She is, yeah, so very similar. So she was born in 1574. Arbella Stewart, born in 1575. So they were very much contemporaries. So if you remember Arbella Stewart's from the Trapped in Towers season, she was potentially gonna be inherit from Elizabeth I. So like this is all that same era this is also around the same time so 10 years after the birth of kit marlowe so she's around during some like good plays being written Anne stanley if you remember her from the jane gray season was born 1580 so also remember her like the whole thing with ferdinando so these people are all around at the same time where it's like who's going to inherit from queen elizabeth the first and the person who does inherit is anna's husband james uh francis howard born 1590 so she's 15 years younger than Anna, which tracks because there's going to be a little crossover moment with our tits out 
icon, but she that's like later in Anna's life where they cross paths. So Anna is like, I don't know, 12 years old. And this is around the same time that Mary Queen of Scots had just been executed for treason. So James was kind of like under a lot of pressure to get married and just sort of like help everyone. Like, I think the same way as now, it's like, you know, if something is going on in the life of a celebrity or a royal person, it's like, guess who's having a baby or a wedding? And then everyone sort of forgets about the scandal. Anyway, so they're like, can you get married? You're 23 years old. He wasn't interested in women except hating them, but he knew that he had to marry a woman to have babies and heirs and also partially, largely because having a wife and having children would make him more appealing as a potential heir to Elizabeth I, who was, again, I'm sort of like going back and forth in time, but she was still alive at this point. And he wanted to suck up to her so he could be the king after her. And a way to do that was to be like, look at me, I'm like a family man. Like how um, politicians today really emphasize the fact that they like have wives and children. Like that makes anybody a better person. Like it does not. And he's like, okay, so there's Anna, there's Elizabeth. Which one should I marry? I don't know. Alla, his um, kind of predecessor, Henry VIII, He's like, well, let's send some portraits like happened with Anna of Cleves because that went so well. Although it goes better here, debatably. So portraits of Anna and Elizabeth were sent to him. Bear in mind, Anna was 14. I think Elizabeth is like 16, James 23, but that's what's going on. And frankly, the two sisters look a lot the same. Anna, like her mother, had a long nose. There's portraits of her. You can see what she looks like. She had blonde hair and she was very tall. James, also very tall because Mary Queen of Scots, six feet tall. But we'll talk about her maybe in a later season. Anyway, so apparently James, who is just like the most, he uh, he never does anything subtly. Everything is a huge production for him. So he took the portraits of both sisters into his bedroom and prayed and meditated for three days after which time he emerged and said, I don't know if it's like God or whatever, but he's like, I choose Anna. He was at this point, 23, Anna, 14. Um, then midway through the marriage negotiations, her father Friedrich died. So that means the new king is 11-year-old Christian. And so the Danish counselors wanted Sophie, who is like, frankly little bit of the MVP of this episode they wanted Sophie the mom to go off and live in the countryside with the daughters while the men helped rule for the for 11 year old Christian but she was like I think not I love my kids and I want to be close to my kids and she truly just did not give up she's like fuck you all I'm staying here with my son and eventually they give in and they agreed she could remain in Copenhagen to look after her children slash to rule as regent Sophie Badass motherfucker, we stand. So with that all sorted, the question of Anna and Elizabeth's marriages could again be considered. So, well, basically, it's like we know who each of them is going to pair up with. So Elizabeth was betrothed to a German duke. And so Anna was betrothed to King James of Scots. There's going to be a lot of fashion moments. I can't wait. There's like one in particular fashion moment that I think... I'm going to propose when we get to it, might be like a trend that the Tits Brigade could maybe bring back, but we'll get to that. So 
Um, 500 tailors and embroiderers set about working on the gowns that would comprise um, Anna's trousseau. She herself worked at stitching shirts for her husband, which was kind of like what one did. She was also excited about it. Um, She and James exchanged letters, and he was just like... He'd never really had experience romantically with women, but he had, like, read a lot of books. So he's just like, I'm going to be a hero, like, in the classics. And she's 14, and she's just like, I'm going to go be queen. I don't know. They're both, like, psyched about it. Like, it's cute. It's good. Anna could speak German and Danish, and she went on a crash course to learn French so that she and James would be able to speak without needing an interpreter because the languages he was fluent in were French. Um, Latin and Scots, which is a language. I double checked that today, so there was some discuss or some debate. Like, if if the people who speak Scots say it's a language, it is. Like, end of story. But like, there's some discussion. Like, is it like a dialect of English or whatever? But it's like enough different from English that it's like its own language. Anyway, she didn't speak Scots or Latin. The other languages James was fluent in, so they both they communicated in French. Yeah, so James was, like, as a wedding present, he, like, gave her a castle. We're going to talk about that later. He oversaw renovations of this castle for her, despite not having enough money to do so, which will be a trend for, frankly, both of them. They were both educated a lot, but not in financial literacy. Uh, Let's see. This was all happening via intermediaries. Like, the letters were between the two of them, but, like, all the communication and planning were through intermediaries. And then the wedding itself, in fact, the betrothal ceremony, because I do have a wedding later, was all done via intermediaries as well. So there's a proxy marriage. So a guy who was not James came from Scotland to Denmark, and this guy placed the betrothal ring on Anne's hand, gave her jewels worth 12,600 pounds, and then married her by proxy. Like, he was there where he's just like, it's like a picture he's just like holding up an ipad with james's face on it sort of thing or he's just like i'm just here representing him and then they had a proxy consummation which was just this guy and anna uh fully clothed just laid down on a bed and they're like okay it's good that's like consummation i guess and then 10 days later the young bride again 14 years old set sail for Scotland. So she had a fleet of 16 ships, which contained her, like, she, both of them, okay, I mean, like, as you might be able to guess, she and James do not have the greatest marriage. What they have in common is a love of just being the most. So her 16 ships contained her furniture, clothes, horses, and a carriage made of solid silver. Time to go meet her gay husband and start her new life as Queen of Scots. But then, a storm happened. Anne's ship sprang a leak. Um, some of the fleet like sank. The wa- it was like stormy seas, like days on the stormy seas, um, and they were forced to take shelter in the Norwegian Sound. Weak from seasickness, as anyone would be, I think, after days on the stormy seas, Anna was escorted to Oslo, comma Norway, and no one seemed to know what to do next. They're just kind of like, "What's up, Oslo?" Like. We were going to Scotland and now we're here. Eventually they were like, I guess we'll just like go back to Denmark, try again later. But then, breaking news. James had 12 ships ready in Scotland to greet her when she arrived with her squad. 
but then only six of her ships arrived. Remember, she had 16. Ten of them, like, either, like, ran aground or sank. So James was very superstitious and also obsessed with witchcraft, ordered that everyone in Scotland should fast and pray for her safekeeping because he's just like, oh, my God, she's not here. It must be witches. So he sent out a search party just to try to figure out where she had gone. This was because he just lived for drama, but also because based on their French letters, he had decided he was passionately in love with her because he saw himself as the hero of these like classic books he had read. Like he wrote songs about how worried he was and began obsessing about all the bad omens he felt he should have taken more seriously. When one of his own ships had set out to greet Anne, like, or what he thought was going to be her, but it was just these six ships, a cannon had exploded and killed some sailors. I mean, frankly, that's a pretty bad omen. The boat of one of Anna's ladies-in-waiting had sunk on its way to the port. So, like, the Scottish people had sent the ladies-in-waiting out, and then that ship had sunk. Um, Forty of its passengers had died. I have to say, these are... I'm, like, a medium superstitious person, and I know that this marriage is going to be bad, so I'm just like, yeah, these are, like, screaming red flags of, like, maybe don't marry this 14-year-old. Anyway, it was now winter... And it was way too dangerous to cross until spring because, again, we're going from Scotland to Denmark by way of Norway, which is just like in terms of winter weather, like damn cold. So but James was just like, nothing can keep me from my beloved. And like literally every member of his council was like, please don't do this. You're the king. Like if and when you die, which you will who's going to be the king after you like there's going to be like a succession crisis etc and he's just like i'm gonna go get my queen and they can stop him because he's the king so he set out with 300 people to go and pick her up himself one of his reasons was that his grandfather james v had gone abroad to fetch his bride but i have to say not from oslo and not in the winter he promised to be home in 20 days like how can you guess that james um he also faced bad weather obviously because it's winter but he made it to Oslo and so he disembarked I love how many clothing details are in this story so get ready so remember he was tall he is like a shitty horrible person but also like very striking and good at dressing so he disembarked wearing a red velvet coat sewn with gold stars beneath a black velvet cloak lined with sable fur Anna was waiting for him And he was so excited to see her. He ran up so eager to meet her. He didn't take off his boots, which is a detail that was noted in one of my sources. And I have to assume is notable. So he leaned in to kiss her, which is like the Scots way. And she pulled back because like, whoa, like what is happening? Like this is not the Danish way. So, but he explained in French because that's the only language that they both could speak without an interpreter. And he's like, no, no, no. This is just like in Scotland. This is how we greet each other. And she's like, okay, that's okay then. And apparently they got along swimmingly. The next day, James arrived again in a new outfit. So dressed in blue velvet sewn with gold. And the two of them spent the day together. And during this time, apparently, they decided that they should probably get married in Oslo instead of waiting until they could get back to Scotland. Because they needed to get married. And Anna was like, I really don't want to go in like the winter seas of like northern Europe. Thank you. So they got married in Oslo, November 23rd, 1598. And James, to help celebrate slash 
because James got James, he had 11 Norwegian women burned as witches who he claimed were the ones who had caused the storms that had almost kept him from his beloved. So he thought this was the only way to fix the bad weather so that their like return trip could be fine. So again, he burnt 11 Norwegian women as witches. So this is just like, again, like in terms of red flags, this would be another one. Some other low-key drama, but this is going to be... There's a lot of communion-based drama in this story. So get ready. As a refresher, that's like in some religions. It's where you go up and you eat the little round hosts, the little bread. In Catholic religion, it's like this is the body and blood of Christ. And in Protestant religions, I believe it's technically not. It's the transubstantiation of it all. Anyway, so remember, Anna is Lutheran. James is Presbyterian. And they were like... He, she was given permission to keep being Lutheran when she was there. She didn't have to switch. Anyway, Presbyterianism, at least in this era, the communion hosts were involved, and she opted not to take part in the communion because of Lutheran reasons. And everyone's like, oh, this, hmm, this communion thing might come up again later. And it does. So just like bear that in mind. And then honeymoon between a 23-year-old man and a 14-year-old woman who only vaguely speak one language to each other, but who had been pen pals for a long time and were both sort of in love with the idea of each other. So because they were in Oslo, they had kind of an impromptu Scandinavian region-based honeymoon. Sophie, best mom, had invited them to come spend the winter with her. And so they set out on, she sent sleighs for them and just like wait for the like Disney's frozen level gorgeousness of this. So black velvet and gold embroidered horse drawn sleighs were sent to take them. Um, so they went to Denmark and, you know, Anna loved her family so much. I'm sure it was like exciting to see them because she thought she was going to Scotland and would never see them again, probably. And in fact, they were in town at the same time that they could attend her sister Elizabeth's wedding to Duke Henrik of Brunswick. And then in April, they headed back to Scotland, finally. So Anna revealed her own love of fashion and a big entrance. Like, again, this is like vulgar history international slash vulgar history, like amazing entrances by tits out women. So her official entrance into Edinburgh was in, if you remember from her ship that didn't sink, the solid silver coach. She arrived and everyone's just like, oh my God, it's like a queen, which is like exciting for the Scots people because the last time they had a queen was Mary Queen of Scots who had spent most of her life in jail. So they were just like, yay, a young, beautiful woman in a silver coach. This is like Cinderella slash Frozen fantasy. There was a coronation which was seven hours long and part of it included i think at james like insisted it's maybe like a thing that's not always done but he was just like oh no this is going to be like the most so the traditional anointing which is when anna's like blouse her like top dress area aka her kirtle was unfastened and some sacred oil was poured onto her shoulder and right arm now the first thing I read about this had hinted that this was literally a tits out moment where they just poured oil on her breast, but I believe it was just a shoulder and right arm situation. Bear in mind also, she is literally 14. So I hope that's all it was. 
So anyway, they were married. They're now king and queen of Scots. Um, and it became clear pretty right away that they were fundamentally incompatible as people. Not just the fact that he was 23 and she was 14, or that they could only communicate in French, but also James was a misogynist who hated women and also was gay. Anna was a girl slash woman. Um, he was obsessed with finding reasons to burn women as witches. Um, she was passionate about art and paintings, um, which he didn't care about paintings. She loved formal ceremonies and pageantry, um, but he liked things to be a bit more plain. He was an extrovert. She was an introvert. And she was also like 14 years old and like away from her family for the first time and like really fucking lonely. So she learned how to speak Scots, but that didn't help because James mostly ignored her. Uh, when she voiced an opinion, which she was, like, a woman of, like, strong convictions who would, like, speak her mind, James was just like, ugh, women are so annoying. Don't you hate her? They, like, are nagging all the time. And then when they had a fight and she got mad, he would, like, leave and then bring someone else in to try and, like, calm her down because he had no social skills. So, but the whole point of them being married was because, well, first to make him look like a good heir to Elizabeth, but also so... They would have children who would be like the heirs to the Scottish throne. But the first two years of their marriage went by without any children. She did not become pregnant. It's not like the dead babies that happen to other people. But also she's like 14 to 16. And in this era, that was um, people didn't start menstruating until around then, often for like nutrition based reasons. So she probably like was not capable of becoming pregnant. Which, frankly, good. I don't want her, aged 15, to be having babies. Um, everyone was freaking out about it, which I'm sure made her more stressed, which made it probably harder to conceive. And But then also people were trying to kidnap and betray them all the time. It was like a real sort of scheming hotspot. So yeah, one, like literally people were like actively trying to kidnap them constantly at one point. One of Anna's ladies-in-waiting helped an attempted kidnapper escape out the window. And James wanted Anna to fire that lady-in-waiting for, like, helping a kidnapper. And she was like, I would soon return to Denmark. Fuck you. So they were just, like, screaming, fighting, almost being kidnapped all the time. Who could she trust? Sort of thing. She gave birth to their first child, Henry Frederick, when she was 19. So five years after the Oslo wedding. And this is when their relationship fundamentally fell apart in irretrievably because she wanted to keep Henry with her to raise him in the like loving way that her mother had raised her and her siblings. And James wanted him to be brought up in his own household apart from his parents, which is like the Scots way. But also he was very paranoid, rightfully, <laughs> about being murdered or kidnapped. And he didn't want him and his son to live in the same place for like security reasons, which is the same reason why the current British royal family they'll never fly with like the like more than one heir or like the king or the queen in the airplane together in case the airplane crashes. Like you never like Prince Charles and William would never be in an airplane and also George, like because just for risk reasons. Anyway, Anna was like, fuck you, I want to be with my son. She was like 19, lonely, married to the worst person in the world. And James was just like, mm, yeah, I don't care. So he sent the baby to live with his friends, Lord and Lady Marr, who incidentally hated Anna and who Anna hated back. 
during this whole thing, like, it's not like the baby was born and taken away right away, but, like, she had given birth, and then a bit later, she became pregnant again. The baby was, like, Henry was taken away, and then she miscarried because of the stress of all of this. James was like, well, you can visit Henry whenever you want, but Anna, she tried that, but she and Lady Mar hated each other so much that she was just like, I can't visit him in that house with these people who I hate. They eventually had two more children, daughters Elizabeth and Margaret, who James permitted them to stay close to Anna, um, and then two more sons, Charles and Robert. So they were all allowed to live like closer, but Henry was kept away because he was the heir to the throne, and Anna was just like would not give up her quest to get closer to Henry, really truly channeling what her mother had done back in the day about how she made it so that she wouldn't have to be separated from Christian. So, let's see. So, James at one point heard that Anna was planning to visit Henry, and he came along for the trip, too, so that she wasn't able to kidnap the baby, which she probably was going to have done. So, she lobbied for support from the uh, council members or whatever, the, like, Scottish lords, and they, like, supported her to the point that James made the Mars, I think, or whoever the Guardian was at this point, write a letter being like, I will never give Henry to you. Even if you come here and ask, even if the king dies, like, Henry will never be reunited with you. Anna, fuck you. So just, like, she was sad. She missed her family. She wanted to be with her son. James was the worst. And then one of their biggest fights was surrounding a thing called the Gowrie Conspiracy of 1600. So... This was a thing where the Earl of Gowrie, John Ruthven, and his brother Alexander tried to assassinate James and got themselves killed. Because again, people are just constantly trying to kidnap and or murder James, which is like, if I was there, I would too. He was a horrible person. So the Ruthven's sisters, Beatrix and Barbara, side note, great names, haven't come across a Beatrix or a Barbara in this era in my reading before. So Beatrix and Barbara had been among Anna's ladies-in-waiting, but James had them fired for assassination brother reasons. Anna was so mad about this. Um, and again, this is like during one of her pregnancies. She went on a hunger strike whilst pregnant and refused to leave bed for two days until the Ruthven sisters were returned to her service. Um, there's a huge fight. Things are going badly. James hired an acrobat to come into her bedroom and do a show to get her mind off of things, which if you're wondering, like, how out of touch is he from, like, how to relate with a woman is when you're in the middle of a fight, hiring an acrobat is, like, that would certainly get her mind off of things for a second. I, I don't know. Maybe it was the ac acrobat, but... Anna started eating and leaving bed again, but she would not give up on her crusade to have the Ruthven sisters hired back. I love her stubbornness, but like literally for three years, she was unrelenting. She's just like, I want my girls back. In 1602, she smuggled Beatrix back into the castle, but then Beatrix was discovered. James kicked her out again. Finally, he agreed to give Beatrix a pension, sort of like severance pay. So she kind of won that battle. I think she did. Yeah. Because James had to give in. But also, he was horrible with money. And he's like, sure, I'll go for money. Like, they were both equally horrible with money. Another one of their bigger fights was when Anna accidentally, quote-unquote, killed James's favorite dog, Jewel, while out on a hunt. Hunting was one of Anna's favorite things. He freaked the fuck out at her, understandably, but then eventually forgave her. I mean, 
I don't know. I do not know how accidental this shooting of the dog was, but I feel like if you're hunting and there's dogs, like things happen. He, he gave her a giant diamond as a memorial to the dog that she killed. I don't know. These two are messy. Basically, they started living in separate houses, but they kept like, but they hated each other. So they kept like telling gossip to the courtiers and the envoys and the ambassadors about each other. But all of the secrets that she slipped to these people were always personal details, never political. Um, And this is partially because he didn't trust her and she didn't know any political stuff. But also she, her whole she maybe didn't care about that stuff why would she like she just cared about her family her children her friends like she was just living for the gossip stuff like let james do the political stuff and this is part of where he was like she's so unintelligent um because it's like she didn't concern herself with politics where it's like not everybody has to james also fuck you so this was just like a high key way to be living obviously and so she found some solace in religion which had always been a comfort to her so remember they were lutheran her family she was lutheran um when they came from denmark she had brought a german lutheran chaplain along with her to like do the services because as part of the marriage agreement she's allowed to like still retain her lutheranism but he was like i'm just gonna convert to being calvinist now which is like not catholic but not lutheran and she didn't like calvinism but so she's like well who's going to be my like chaplain now and she had friends who were roman catholic and maybe encouraged by them or just in some sort of like soul searching moment she began thinking like maybe i want to become catholic as well so she began taking secret instruction from a jesuit priest which was a big deal because at this point of time in this era like whether you were the queen or not the punishment for even hosting a jesuit priest in your house was death but she clearly liked what she learned because soon enough she underwent a super secret sexy conversion to catholicism yes she became a catholic this was kept super secret sexy because if anyone i.e the subjects of scotland found out about it it would be a disaster because it had been at this point 40 years since the scottish reformation um the country was not catholic there was like major like catholic v protestant um wars still going on i think the catholics were some of the people who were like constantly trying to like assassinate her husband although james apparently knew that she had converted um but he kept it a secret he didn't stop her from attending secret sexy mass but he said that she had to keep it a secret and she had to promise not to convert any of their children. Um, so she had like some of her attendants were like secretly priests in disguise. And we know this because an ambassador or somebody later was like, yeah, then Anna went to uh, mass and one of her like attendants did the mass where it's like just like priests in disguise. So she had just like all Catholics around her, but they're all like secret in disguise Catholics. At one point, the literal Pope... Oh, I didn't look up to see if this is the same Pope who's been like the Pope in any other stories, but this is also like vulgar history, colon, Pope guest appearances. Anyway, he wrote a letter where he was like, I don't even know what religion this woman is. I have no idea what's going on. I'm the Pope. You know, peace out. So aside from being secretly Catholic, her other major hobby was spending money. 
she was very interested in architecture. So remember there was the castle that he bought her and he did the renovations he couldn't afford. So she moved in and started making more renovations. So her home was called Dunfermline. Dunfermline. I don't know, it's a Scottish word. James had given her this place as a wedding gift and she oversaw rebuilding and enlarging it. Um, she also laid out some very beautiful gardens that were praised by later visitors. She was also an art collector. She loved paintings and she's also very into jewels, including jewelry design. She, like when she came over from Denmark, she had brought with her a Danish jeweler, but he complained that she wasn't paying him in time and she probably wasn't. Her finances were a disaster. Um, so he complained she wasn't paying him and then he like stole some gems and ran away and like, frankly, good for him. So then she hired an Edinburgh based goldsmith called George Harriet and they had a long, fruitful sort of collaborative relationship, kind of like, um, Kim Kardashian with Balenciaga where, you know, she would just like come up with ideas and he'd do some designing and that sort of stuff. So in addition to buying gold and jewels from him, he also loaned her vast sums of money because she and James were in debt constantly. But it didn't matter because their money problems were all solved when Elizabeth I died in England and she named James as her successor. So James became King of England as well as King of Scots. And I feel like also Ireland, or at least he claimed that at the time. So Anna was by this point 29 years old. He ran off to England as soon as he heard the news to like be like, yeah, I'm the king, which perfect opportunity for her. Also, she's pregnant at this point. She was left behind to just like tie up loose ends, etc. And if you know her, like I think you do after having listened to 45 minutes of podcast about her. She went right away to Stirling Castle, which is where Prince Henry was, to take him with her. Her old enemy, Lady Mar, was there. Lady Mar refused to hand over the prince without an official warrant from the king, so they had, like, a huge fight, again causing her to miscarry. She lay dangerously ill for days. Uh, James was just like, oh, for fuck's sake. So he arranged a thing, so it's like one person would, like, get the prince, and one person would get Anne, and then... Anne wouldn't have to see any of the Mars. Anyway, ultimately, she finally got to be with her son again. Victory for Anna. And they headed for England. So at this point, so there's Henry, the oldest son, and then there were two other children who had survived infancy. So Margaret and Robert had both died very young. Um, there was Elizabeth, their daughter, and then the youngest was Charles, who was very frail and not able to travel yet. And honestly, just the change of energy of like Elizabeth I had been, you know, whole a, a single woman um, with male favorites and stuff. But it was just like adults, like increasingly getting older adults around the palace. And now it was like a cute young family with like little kids. Anna was there being like young and glamorous. So they came and they brought like a new vitality back into the palace. She and James are crowned at Westminster, and I've got some outfit details. She wore a robe of crimson velvet. Like, these two are all about the velvet, which I also feel is sort of like Denmark represent with just like the warm fabric. Her hair was hanging loose on her shoulders, a plain gold coronet on her head. I'm sure it planned very carefully with her best friend slash jeweler, George. She didn't take communion during the ceremony. So again, everyone's like, what's up with her not taking communion? So this 
aroused gossip about her being maybe a super secret sexy catholic but remember she also didn't take it when she was lutheran but so that's just i don't know communion is like always a weird thing about her reputation and in fact before she died queen elizabeth i had been like what's the deal with anna and like what religion is she because it was really important that queen elizabeth's successor would be protestant and anna just sort of politely sidestepped ever like answering yes or no about like if she was catholic or not queen elizabeth in fact had written letters before she died to anna saying don't let anyone convert you to being catholic and if anyone does like tell me the names of the catholics who try to make you be catholic and she wrote back like haha lol i don't know any catholics bye meanwhile one of her besties was a woman named henrietta gordon whose husband was literally an exiled catholic so honestly um things happen like for instance when james became the king he sent an envoy to italy just to sort of spread the word be like hey guess who's the king of england now it's james and he went to tell the pope like guess who's the king and the pope was like oh great glad to see you like can you give this like rosary to anna so and he's like why would the protestant queen of england want a rosary from the pope whatever so he delivered it first mistake james flew into a rage and ordered the envoy to be sent to the tower of london for like giving her a like popish gift anna was like oh my god how embarrassing i never asked for a rosary from the pope lol but she also like behind the scenes made sure that that guy was like led to the tower of london and presumably she like took the rosary and like prayed with it or whatever um after the coronation they went on a little trip through the south of england to be like hello we're your glamorous new you know king and queen she loved the theater and so she got to see a performance of as you like it by shakespeare she met the famous poet ben johnson who she had become his patron and she got beautiful new homes to live in um instead of just the one she had been renovating in scotland she hired the famous french garden designer solomon de Coz to build a huge fountain at her home in the form of Mount Parnassus, surmounted by Apollo and the Muses. Unfamiliar, can't quite picture what that looks like, but sounds great. Yeah, and so this is the point at which they just lived separate lives. So um, their sixth child was a daughter named Mary, named after Mary Queen of Scots. So like, they lived separate lives, but like every now and then, clearly, conceived more children. And then she had another daughter called Sophia, named after her mother but both of these girls died in infancy and then she had some sort of medical slash gynecological health complication wherein she stopped having children and i think the two of them just like stopped trying to have children e.g having sex with each other because of medical slash gynecological reasons i also want to think she was like we're good let's just not have any more children let's just like not have sex anymore thanks at around the same time the gunpowder plot happened which was a thing very famous in like england where guy fox day and all that stuff so briefly my vague understanding of it so this is the thing where a bunch of people the conspirators one of whom was guy fox wanted to blow up the parliament building i think they were catholics with the king and prince henry inside so if they exploded like in that one time in game of thrones where everyone in the building exploded that would mean that the new monarch would be princess elizabeth and who was like a little girl at this point and they thought she would be like their puppet and she would like do what they said and they would like make her be catholic and i think they chose her because charles was still like a little baby 
the plot did not work because somebody told on them the like powder the like literal powder keg is that what it is the like gunpowder was found parliament did not blow up and also like fun fact elizabeth this little princess the daughter of anna was really headstrong really opinionated and probably would have not done what they wanted had they won anyway and the gunpowder plot was funded by a secret Catholic patron, and nobody knows who it was. Like, even when the conspirators were tortured, none of them would name names. And so Tracy Borman, who I read, she wrote this article on historyextra.com, because she has written a, a series of novels set in this era, and her theory in one of the novels is that it was Anna was the secret patron who, like, funded the gunpowder plot, which is, I feel like, unlikely, but, like, how cool would it be? even if it was her like she made it a fictional story i don't think she's being like here's what happened but she's like this is what could have happened because in the months leading up to the gunpowder plot anna had gathered a lot of catholics around her as bedchamber attendants and as i said they helped smuggle priests into court disguised as other personal attendants but i feel like she had dedicated her life to reuniting with henry she would never have blown him up i could see her blowing up james i could see a lot of people blowing up james I don't know if at this point Catholicism was more important to her than like her children. And I don't think so. Anyway, so their two infant daughters died. The gunpowder plot was kind of a big deal. And they just effectively separated in public. Anna was gracious and a great diplomat. And the parties she threw were legendary and also helped elevate English court to the, uh, that of other European nations by making them seem more cultured and cool. She was a dedicated patron of the arts, especially writing in theater, and she would sometimes perform herself in the many, many, many plays that were put on during her time as queen. Do you remember in the Lady Anne Stanley episode, there was, we talked about in there about the like parties she would throw and like the masks that she would hold and how there was like Lady Anne Stanley and her family, like they appeared in a mask or like one was commissioned to be like, guess what? We're okay again. And like, let us be fancy people still. Yeah, so when she w when she had been just Queen of Scotland, this whole set of things wasn't... She wasn't able to really indulge in this because Scotland, at that time, was very frugal and straight-laced and just like, my notes say, Presbyterian. Does that mean anything? I don't know. But she just loved glamour, extravagance, um, and this worked a lot better in England, where her encouragement allowed artists to flourish creatively. And in fact, this era is known for a lot of the artistic stuff that happened. And some mistakenly say like it was james who encourages this where it's like no he was burning witches and like translating the bible to be more misogynistic it was anna of denmark who's getting the artistic stuff to happen so her parties were masks m-a-s-q-u-e this is like where a theater company would be hired to bring singers musicians and performers and then the king and queen and courtiers would join them in dancing i think james would generally not attend because he didn't like i don't know parties there's usually a play performed, and with Anna as the party planner, these would have some of the most sophisticated and ornate sets ever, because she was the most. Like, people would come from other countries when they heard one of her mask parties was coming up, because they knew it was going to be so legendary. She was responsible for the most innovative court masks ever seen to that point in Britain. So this also showed off how rich they were, which made other countries want to deal with them more. Although, side note, they weren't rich. Um, she was just spending a lot of money. Although, no, maybe they were rich at this point because of, like, colonization and, like, piracy. 
it was around this time women began to be permitted to act on stage because remember in like Shakespeare and love and stuff it's like men play the women parts so this is another thing that she helped to mainstream in fact Anna would sometimes cast herself or her ladies in waiting in roles in the show this sometimes led to controversy such as one time she wore a toga in her role as Athena and some audience members felt it was too short so this is just like a legs out moment living for it she's the queen so like what are you gonna do if the queen wants to wear like a toga miniskirt here we go she also like because of her creative partnership with george harriet amazing jewels for all of her costumes and so what we know about her and the jewelry that she and he worked on together she liked her jewelry to be shaped like stuff so like brooches in the form of flowers butterflies and parrots she at one point had a jeweled hair ornament shaped like a crossbow to reference her love of hunting and unusual earrings for instance there's a portrait of her that shows her out hunting and in this portrait she's wearing a shoelace suspended from a gold ring in one ear and this is what i feel like let's do a tits out brigade we're bringing back shoelace earrings this is i I just think it's like a doable thing that we can make this happen how do we make this go viral on tiktok shoelace earrings you know i'm on tiktok I haven't done anything there. I appreciate when people, Tizard Brigade members, send me videos in TikTok because it helps me understand what it's for. But here, what here's what I think we should do: shoelace earrings. Let's make it happen. She was also a patron to portrait artists. Um, collected lots of pieces of art. Some dude called Lord Salisbury said she seems to prefer pictures to people. And like, frankly, if the people are assholes, I would too. She was also sort of like straight laced and quiet. Um, I'd say like James was extroverted, she was introverted, and some people thought that meant she was stuck up or mean, but honestly, like frankly, she was still lonely, missed her like close-knit family in Denmark, was married to fucking James, how many like children had died in infancy, like I'm sorry, how happy do you expect her to be, like, and slash she's throwing these parties, like clearly she had a good time, but yeah, so she was close to her children, she like lived for her children, which... Like, and she was 19 when Henry was born. So it's like such a young mom away from home. Like, I feel it's like, this is like she made her own family, like her and the children. That's like where she found the love that she needed, which is why when he died of typhus aged 18, she was obviously devastated. And then that same year, her daughter Elizabeth was sent off to Heidelberg to be married. And I think they never saw each other again. And she fell, understandably, into a deep depression, which coincided with she already had this sort of like health issue from like the birth complications It's described she is having gout which is just kind of like a word people used in this era that could mean like arthritis or it could mean like i don't know she was just like doing poorly slash was depressed her brother christian king of denmark did come by shortly after the death of the two infant girls and i'm sure that was like nice for her but he couldn't stay forever 1614 she held her final mask like she just couldn't do it anymore because she was so sick bear in mind she's like 39 by now like how much has happened to her and with her just ill and kind of out of the way like james this whole time as you probably know or maybe i mentioned already has just been hanging out with his like various male favorites um george villiers robert carr this is like around the same time that the thomas overbury murder situation featuring tits out francis howard happened so that's what james is up to meanwhile she's just like mourning her like dead children and just like 
whatever, having illnesses. Yeah, she got more and more sick, and her son Charles, who's no longer a little baby, came and slept in the room with her because she was a loving mother, and also her love of art really imprinted on her sons. Charles was really into that as well, thank God. Like, he didn't inherit everything from his awful dad. And he was nice to her, so, like, he stayed with her while she was ill. She was getting more and more ill. James visited a couple times, but not very often, because he sucked, and she was, like, literally dying, but because no one could know that she was super secret Catholic, they couldn't bring a Catholic priest in to give her the last rites, so instead it was, like, I don't know, the, what is it, the, like, Anglican guy, the, like, archbishop or whatever, and then she died aged 44, March 2nd, 1619, and she was laid to rest in King's, King Henry's Chapel in Westminster Abbey. James, kind of, like, a bringing back the like over-the-top way that he acted when they first met he was very performative about being like oh so sad about her death and they had had by the answer of like a brother-sister relationship sort of vibes he didn't attend her funeral because i'm not sure one source i read said because he just didn't like funerals like okay or he might have been sick as well but the sickness might have just been him being like oh no i'm so sad and sick Anyway, he also wrote songs, just like when he'd been waiting to meet her in Denmark, he wrote a poem, but he did not erect a tomb in her memory because he sucks. But then later her daughter Elizabeth would make a tomb for her, her legacy. So their son Charles would go on to become King Charles I. More importantly, her daughter Elizabeth, remember the one who the like conspirators wanted to make the queen and the gunpowder thing, she became queen of Bohemia which like, first of all, gives me like Coachella vibes, but that's not it. It's literal Bohemia, like in Germany. She became hugely influential in like European history. And she, so after like the Stuart dynasty kind of ended, they're like, who's going to be the new king of England? They traced down Elizabeth's family tree. So her daughter, Sophia, and then George I. And then that dynasty was the Royal House of Hanover, and that kind of got rid of the Stuart dynasty altogether, which ultimately makes Anna of Denmark an ancestor to every English monarch from Charles I to the present day. There are very few things written about her, I have to say. She's, even though her life story is like, I think, and I hope you agree after having listened to all of this, super interesting. There's a biography written of her in like 1970. And then just when I was tragically bad timing, I realized there was a biography of her written in 2021, but I didn't have time to read it because it's like only in England. Anyway, not a lot of people writing about her. I think they should. I think she's super interesting. She's like never in, she's like a supporting character. So like in Tracy Borman's books, she shows up in A Net for Small Fishes by Lucy Jago. Also, um, as we learned in that interview with Lucy Jago, like Anna of Denmark came over and she kind of like she worked with Anne the the woman who invented the tits out neckline the yellow ruffs she had kind of like a a style evolution as well the Lady Jane Seymour Memorial Award for Outstanding Supporting Performance I don't see that from anyone here I think her mom is great but this is the story of Anna and the mother was tragically not there for all this stuff to be able to support her I would give James the anti-supporting performance, but that's not an award. That's just me shitting all over him for the last hour. Scandaliciousness. So for Anna, the thing is, there's not like super secret sexy scandals. 
except in the sense of like conversion, which actually like, it's not like she didn't murder people. She wasn't having affairs, but like becoming Catholic was so scandalous in this era that she could never tell anybody about it. I love that she brought in these um, secret priests. It's scandalous in context, very scandalous in context. Actually, when I was like in that story, I was just like, you know, there's rumors. It's like, was she Catholic? Was she not? It's like, she pretty much was. That's pretty badass of her. I'm going to give her a seven for scandalousness based on the super secret sexy conversion. Her scheminess, I think, is actually pretty good. Like her, she didn't, her schemes were like based on like getting her son back and it was effective. Her scheme, like she wanted that, um, the one lady in waiting, like her scheminess combined with just sort of like dedication, stubbornness, never giving upingness, like she wasn't scheming to like have more power or whatever. She's scheming to get what she wanted to be happier. So it doesn't matter what the scheme is about. If it's, she was schemy. I'm going to give her a six for scheminess. Her significance. I think she was such a great patron of the arts. Wasn't there someone else where it's just like with Harem Sultan where it's kind of like all the people who she helped, like the little ripples of like how many people that affected ultimately. So here it's like the art that Anna helped patronize is that the word no patronage like that would just have an effect like the great plays that came out and stuff like that was and then also her children um eventually i don't know i don't know like her significance personally Mm, i'm gonna give her a six for significance because it's like more than five but like her specifically, like I can't like trace her to any specific thing unless she was the one who funded the gunpowder plot, which would give her extra marks and scandalousness, scheminess and significance. But that's like entirely um, theoretical. The sexism bonus, I think. Well, there's just the shitty things about like she kept having babies. The babies kept dying. That was awful. Um, and like her job was to have babies and that is not a great job. And it's very gendered of her. I think the sexism that she faces, frankly, was like starting in her lifetime and then later on too. It's this reputation of just being this sort of like flighty, vapid, vain, shallow, like unintelligent person. It's like, why? Because she like didn't get involved in politics. Like, firstly, there's nothing wrong with being vapid, nothing wrong with being flighty, nothing wrong with being unintelligent, nothing wrong with any of that. And so those are very, like, gendered things to be like, oh, she just wasn't as, like, smart and clever as whatever Elizabeth I. But it's like, fuck you. Like, she was a cool person. She had a hair clip shaped like a crossbow. She wore a shoelace in her earring. Like, she made all these plays. She wore a toga miniskirt one time. Like, she was doing cool stuff. And, and just so much of her reputation in history seems to be like, oh, but she was just, like, so shallow. Like, fuck you. That's, like an eight i'm giving her an eight sex and bonus because because she has this bad reputation entirely because her like shitty husband was like oh she's not as smart as me and everyone's like yeah she's not like fuck off so what does this all add up to it's been so long since i did a score what is math um seven plus six plus six plus eight equals 27 that's very squarely amid some great company, I have to say. 27 um, is the same score as from the same season, Saida Alhura. Also 27, Isabel of Portugal. 
Ana de Mendoza, Margaret Pohl, Isabella of Castile, Jean de Lamotte. It's a frequent score. Jean, um, Catherine Parr, Francis Gray. And she's actually just above Francis Howard. Her contemporary had a 26. Anna of Denmark, 27. Frankly, I'm like very defensive of her now. Just reading about how people have been so mean to her in history just makes me want to be like, you know what? Like theater is important. Like fashion is important. Jewelry design is important. Like being a cool mom, like all this stuff she did. It's like just because she wasn't whatever, like leading armies doesn't mean she wasn't important or like clever or like her life mattered anyway anna of denmark a life lived across four countries as far as i can tell 27 classic average vulgar history score so thank you for listening yeah it's, i feel like it's been like so long since they did an episode frankly it has been because catalina de arauso was three episodes and there's a Q&A but we're like we're back in it it's the second half of this extremely long international season we've got some great stuff coming up and just some things to tell you about so for instance if you go to vulgarhistory.com there's you can contact me there if you have like feedback or thoughts or suggestions of people for future episodes or themes for future seasons or if I like mispronounced something in Danish you know let me know if you go to um, bookshop.org, well, there will be a link in the show notes. So bookshop.org slash shop slash vulgar history. That's where books that I have mentioned on the show are all listed there, including uh, the historical fiction from the Q&A episode. And when you buy books through that link, um, bookshop.org slash shop slash vulgar history, then a little bit of money goes towards me and this podcast. And I'm, I've been able to do as long of a season as we're currently halfway through doing because of the support of listeners like you. So both uh, using Bookshop, um, if you go to vulgarhistory.store, that is where our merch is. We've got amazing merch at the moment, um, international merch. We've got the Catalina de Arauso. What is it? It's like hard work and persistence can perform miracles. Um, there's Llama, Llama merch from Catalina de Arauso. There's... Uh, oh, we've got super secret sexy wedding themed merch. Anyway, it's all there. And if you use code TITSOUT, you get free shipping in the US or TITSOUT10 for 10% off your order. Um, also, if you go to patreon.com slash Writer, that's where you can join the active and thriving Patreon community. And that is where if you pledge one or two dollars a month you can get early access to episodes of vulgar history um if you pledge five dollars or more and this is like us so like convert it because i know you're all around the world tits out brigade um you get access to the so this asshole episodes that's where you can learn more about james the first slash sixth if you want to just like like gouge your ears out with like how awful he was there's also polls there and stuff to help me choose topics and things like that and yeah the patreon community is so supportive again it's like that's part of why financially i'm able to dedicate as much time as i have been lately to this podcast but i want to say also i know this is like a shitty time for everybody in the world and i don't want to be like spend money on me like i don't please don't feel bad about that like the most important thing you can do is what you're doing right now which is listening to this show uh, you could also, like, tell your friends about the show. You can also, like, I don't know, talk about the show on, like, Twitter or TikTok or whatever. Just let, spread the word. I appreciate that. Um, if you're able to, like, if you're listening to the show on an app, 
on which you can rate or review. Spotify, by the way, if you click on the little rate and review, you can give it five stars. There's like a thousand five-star reviews. I love it. Let's get to 2,000. Let's just like let Spotify know that we are the Tits Up Brigade. We've got shoelaces in our ears and we're just like, we're here. You can also review on Apple Podcasts, I think on Google Podcasts, various things. Not just do those reviews help with the algorithm and more people finding the show, but also it just makes me feel good. Yeah, I'm most frequently communicating with the Tits Up Brigade on Instagram, which where we're at Vulgar History Pod. I'm also on Twitter at Vulgar History, and I guess that's everything. It's really exciting. Honestly, like it feels like it's been a really long time since I did an episode. I'm back in. There's some really amazing stuff coming up. This is an extremely long season. Thank you for all listening. Keep your mask on. Keep your pants on. Keep your tits out. And I'll talk to you all in one week. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.